Hello, friends. What's up? This is part two of the book of Job. Well, actually, this one, we're going to title it Job Part Two. Job's going to sue God? Seriously? So if you haven't listened to the first one, go back and listen to that one because that's going to help set up this one. In the last episode, we did chapters one through three and talked about how the book of Job is a part of the wisdom literature from the Hebrew scriptures, and it raises amazing questions, has got a fantastic story to it, and is rather poetic most of the way. So in some sense, it is kind of an epic poem that's been passed down throughout history, and each chapter creates new conversations. And you can easily see this being a fireside conversation book that was memorized and then said as like evening entertainment to the next generation okay but the last episode we called it wait job got set up because job was set up by an agreement between god and satan i know right that causes problems what do we do with that but there was an agreement between god and satan to attack all of his wealth and family and then eventually even his health and then he had some friends show up, and that's where we dropped off. So that's where we're going to pick up right now, okay? So thank you for listening. My name is John. I was trained as a pastor. This is one of the ways that I'm trying to do something good with that education. And thank you for being here for the ride. So what we're going to do in this one is I'm going to briefly break down what happens in chapters 4 through 29 and then we're going to actually read chapters 30 and 31 and then that'll be the end of this episode okay so if you've never paid attention to the book of job or never had somebody actually explain it to you or you've never had a chance to read it in length for yourself this is perfect this is a good introduction these three episodes so here we go in chapter four we have Job sitting in the dirt and the dust, and he's just completely down. Obviously, he lost all of his wealth, all of his business, his family. He's even lost his health. And now his friends, three of them, have shown up to sit with him, but then also to reason with him about how to move forward in the midst of all of this loss and tragedy. And of course, they've got some epic names right so we've got one friend Eliphaz because you know you and I both know Eliphaz's today another friend's name is Bildad Bildad's an interesting dude right and the last one Zophar all of these are commonplace names am I right even Job <laughs> okay but the name Job we think is a play on the Hebrew word Oyeb which means adversary or lawyer even and so this book is actually, especially these middle chapters, four through about kind of like 38-ish, um, are about Job setting up to have a lawsuit against God. That's right. Because everywhere in the world, there's a sense of justice. People have an understanding of what is right, what is wrong, and how the world is supposed to operate. And so here is Job sitting, excuse me, sitting down with his friends. And yes, they do give him 
bad advice, but really they're giving the theology that they've been taught. And then Job's life experiences combat that theology that his friends were taught. And so what we have here is this age old question of what do you do when your life doesn't match up with the understanding of God that you've been given or shown or explained by others to you. Whoa, right? So even though this book is potentially uh, 2,500 years or older as a story, that's a timeless thing. What do you do when your life circumstances literally butt up against the theology and the ways that you were taught to think about God? Oh, right? So let's break it down. Uh, We have chapter four. We've got Eliphaz speaking, and then it goes back to Job, and Job has got some serious complaints. Listen, God watches from on high. He should see all of this stuff. Then Bildad speaks up, and then Job, he does something interesting. He's like, all right, listen, even if I were to sue God, God's not going to show up. He's not going to listen or care or notice somebody like me. I can have all these complaints, but that doesn't mean God's going to show up. Zophar then speaks up. Then we've got Job going back and forth. But at this point, Job starts to have uh, formulations of what kind of argument he was going to make with God if God were to show up. Then we've got Eliphaz speaking up. Job goes back and forth, and really what we have is a volley back and forth between Job and his three friends, and they're each trying to convince him he must have done something wrong. And that's why all this bad stuff happened to him. Because, well, it's it's like half true. Yeah, some things happen to you as a consequence of your own actions, but... What do you do when things happen to you that weren't a consequence of your own actions? Should you just bow before those things and and let them happen to you? That's what the book of Job is about. Then we've got back and forth with Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job again, Eliphaz, Job again, back and forth, all over. But it all comes up to chapter 30. Well, chapter 28 is pretty awesome as well. It's about where can you go to find wisdom? How interesting. At almost the very heart of this book is a chapter about how wisdom is more elusive, but worth even more than gold that can be mined from the depths. So go back and read chapter 28 for yourself. But we're going to read uh, chapters 30 and 31. And here's why... 30 and 31 are what we're going to skip ahead to is because Job 30 and 31 is when Job has finally succinctly put together what his case against God will be. So if this book could also be titled adversary or lawyer, we start to see it's almost like um, Job's conversations with his friends are almost like pre-trial or litigation uh, write-ups. What is our case going to be? What is our argument going to be? And how are we going to prove your innocence in a court of law against God? You see, this book is so fascinating because it does that topic. 
I don't know of any other book in the Bible that has actually somebody setting up to sue God. But here it is. So we're going to read chapter 30 and 31. And I'm going to pause every so often. All you need to know is that at this point, Job has lost all of his finances, all of his businesses, all of his family, and now he doesn't even have good health. Everything's been taken from him except for his life. And in chapters 3, 2 and 3-ish, he even curses the day of his own birth. He doesn't curse God yet, but he does get like within a, a fraction of doing that. He curses the day of his own birth and wishes that he wasn't born or had not survived being born. So that's as close as you could get to just saying, just kill me now. But since he's still alive, his plan is to sue God. And this right here is what his argument is going to be. This is chapter 30, verse 1. And this is speaking about people around him at first. But now they laugh at me, those younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put among my sheepdogs. What good is the strength of their hands to me? All their vigor is spent. They are gaunt from want and starvation. They flee to the parched desert by night to the wasted wasteland. They pluck saltwort among the scrub and roots of the broom for their food. They are driven from society. They are shouted at like a thief. So they dwell in wadi ravines. That's a place. In caves of the ground or rock. In the scrub they bray. Huddled together among the nettles, scoundrels and non-entities, outcasts of the earth. So he's, he's speaking about all these terrible people. But now I am one of their jokes. I'm a byword among them. They abhor me and keep aloof from me. They have no scruples about spitting in my face because he loosed my cord and afflicted me. They have thrown off restraint to my face. So he's speaking about all of the uh, refuse of society and how even they feel like they're in a better position. And they, the refuse of society, are now mocking him. So he's actually debasing himself quite a bit. He's setting up his argument about how low he has dropped from being a, a patriarch of a lot of the community's respect. Hmm. Here we go. On the right, they rise as a rabble. They trip up my feet. They construct roadworks to ruin me. Then they break up my path and work towards my downfall. There is no one to deliver me from them. They come through a wide breach amid the rubble. They keep rolling in. Terrors are turned loose on me. They sweep away my honor like a wind. My prestige vanishes like a cloud. So now my life drains from me as days of affliction take hold of me. By night, he chews at my bones within me. Oh, man, that is a harsh statement about God. Those who gnaw on me never rest. With 
great strength. He ties me up with my garment and strangles me with the neck of my tunic. He flings me in the mud, so I come to resemble dust and ashes. So here he is. He's still setting up his argument that he has been thrown completely down. But this is where it comes. All right. That's his, that's his station in life right now. Here we go. I cry out to you, but you do not answer. I present myself to you, but you do not notice me. You have changed into my tormentor. Assaulting me with your heavy hand, you lifted me up to ride the wind and then made my success melt away. I know you will return me to death, to the meeting house of all the living. I did not strike the poor. When they cried out to me in their disaster, did I not weep for the unfortunate? Did my soul not grieve for the poor? I hoped for good, but evil came. I looked for light, but gloom came. Now my bones are in ceaseless turmoil. Days of affliction confront me. In gloom I go about with no sun. I rise up in the assembly and cry out, I have become a brother to the jackal and a friend to the ostrich. (laughs) like that my skin has turned black upon me and my bones are charred by the heat so my lyre is tuned for lament and my flute to accompany mourning oh so here he is job saying i've done nothing wrong i have even helped those whom had misfortune happened to them and yet all of my days have turned to darkness job is spiraling in his own despair but at least right now it's like well the grammar of my life doesn't match up i've been doing everything right so why is everything being taken from me and my days so dark so here we go job is saying i didn't deserve this lot in life i've been doing the righteous compassionate good things all along and yet all of my instruments are going to be played as laments and dirges and sad songs so this is his argument this is how he's planning on suing god this is his lawsuit i didn't deserve any of this but you and I both know the background that the reason why all of this is happening is because God and Satan made a wager as towards what would have to happen to Job before he would finally snap. Here we go. So what do we do with this? Man, this makes it sound as though, what's the word, causality? It, it doesn't always apply. Just because you're an evil person doesn't mean good things won't happen to you and just because a good you're a good person doesn't mean the bad won't happen to you. This book flies in the face of some other passages of the Bible that say if you do like good things good things will happen to you. This book comes along and says, "Eh, maybe." Or at least, "Eh, not always." Ugh. So here we go. This is going to be chapter 30 and this is kind of uh, sorry, 31. And this is going to be like the second half of his lawsuit against God. Here we go. I cut a covenant with my eyes that I would not eye a virgin. What fate is apportioned by Eloah above? 
What inheritance by Shaddai in the heights? Those are both names for God. Is it not calamity for the wicked and disaster for the evildoers? You see, he's saying like, wait, it's not supposed to go like this. Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Have I walked with falsehood or my feet hastened after deceit? Let him weigh me on the scales of righteousness. Let Eloah know my integrity. So it's like, oh my gosh. He's, he's holding God to court. Really? If my steps have strayed from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or a stain clung to my hands, may I sow and cons- may I sow and another consume, and may my offspring be uprooted. If my heart was seduced by a woman and I lurked at my neighbor's door, may my wife grind for another and others kneel over her. For that would be licentiousness, itself a criminal offense, truly a fire that consumes to a bad and devouring all my income to the roots. He's going to keep going. Here we go. Have I dismissed the case of my manservant or my maidservant when they made a complaint against me? What then would I do when L rises in court? When he examines me, how will I answer? Did not he who made me in the belly make them the one fashion us both in the womb? Have I denied the poor their needs? Or let the eyes of the widow fail? By eating my morsel alone while the orphan ate none of it? Why, from his youth, he grew up with me as with a father, and from his mother's womb I guided him. He's talking about taking care of the orphans. Have I watched any perish from lack of clothes, or the poor from lack of garment? Did their loins not bless me, as they warmed themselves by the fleece of my sheep? If I raised my hand against the orphan because I saw my support in the gate, may the blade fall from my shoulder and my arm be broken from its socket, for I dread a calamity from El and I cannot face his majesty. He He's right here saying, I've been taking care of the orphans. I've been taking care of other people. People that have been in want and need have actually gotten clothing from the wool of my sheep. Continuing, did I place my confidence in gold or consider fine gold my security? Did I not rejoice because my fortune was great or because my hand had acquired riches? Have I looked at the sun in its brilliance or the moon in its course in full glory so that my heart was secretly seduced and my hand touched my mouth with a kiss? That too would be a criminal offense for I would have betrayed L on high. Did I rejoice at my enemy's ruin? Did I celebrate when evil befell upon him? Never did I let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Did men of my household ever say, may we never be sated with his flesh, meaning like want to kill him. No stranger ever spent the night in the street. My doors were open to the traveler. Did I conceal my sins like Adam? hiding his iniquity in my bosom because I was intimidated by the crowd and terrified by the contempt of clans so that I kept silent and did not venture out of doors. He's still setting up his arguments. Like, what have I done? What have I done? He's essentially saying that over and over and over again. I think I remember reading somewhere that Job has got a set of if statements. If I did this, then I deserve that. 
but I didn't do this, so I didn't deserve that. He's using actually decent logic here about what is just and how what has happened to him was not fair. It was not a fair response to how he's been living his life. And this is it. Oh, if only someone would conduct my hearing. Here is my signature. Let Shaddai be my respondent. Let my adversary at law draft a document. Then I would wear it on my shoulder. I would bind it to me like a crown. I would announce to him the court of my steps. And like a prince, I would confront him. Ah, this is getting good. If my ground cried out against me and its furrows wept together, if I have eaten its produce without payment and caused its owners to despair, may thorns grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are completed. And that's it. So that is his lawsuit against God. He's going to say, I didn't deserve any of this. I've been living the good and righteous life. This evil, all this calamity, the fact that I've lost all of my finances, all my business, all of my family, all of my health, I didn't deserve any of this. How dare God is what he's saying. And that's why it's so profound when at the end of that chapter, chapter 31, it says the words of Job are completed. He's done. That's his final statement. I have nothing more to say to this, but God is not here. But if you were here, this would be the lawsuit that I would set up. Now, there's something kind of funny that happens in the next chapter, next few chapters, is that this whole time we thought there was just three friends in attendance, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz. But in the next chapter, along shows up this young blowhard, named Elihu, who even says that he's a young man and that's why he hasn't spoken up. Because in Middle Eastern culture, you respect your elders by being silent. They clearly have more wisdom than you do, so you should just sit back and shut up. Just listen to the older people. So here's what he says, and then we're going to chat. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So his three friends shut up. They had no response to his final lawsuit, his complaint against God. But they all think, no, nah, it's not. Eh. He's still trying to make himself look more righteous than he really is. Clearly, he's got some sin in there somewhere. Then the anger of Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite from the clan of Ram, flared up against Job because he thought himself more righteous than God. So here's Elihu in chapter 32 getting furious because it was like, how dare Job actually think that he's innocent in all of this? Clearly all of this happened because he's a bad person. Continuing, his anger also flared up with his three friends. Because they had found no answer and so had made God appear guilty. So Elihu here is not only angry with Job because he's defending his own innocence and righteousness in this situation. But he's also angry with the three older men 
because they made it seem like God is guilty in this situation, which you and I both secretly know God and Satan made an agreement at the beginning of this book. Now, Elihu is furious. He's like, no, God can't be guilty here because God's righteous and he always does the things the right way. And so what's going on here? So he's furious at Job and the three friends, each for different reasons. Elihu had waited with Job while they spoke, for they were older than he. But when Elihu saw that these three men had no answer in their mouth, his anger flared up again. I I just like this next part. Uh, I am young in days, and you are old men. So I was scared and afraid to speak my mind before you. I said to myself, days will testify, and many years teach wisdom. He's complimenting the older people. Surely she is the spirit in humans and the breath of Shaddai that gives them insight. He's speaking about wisdom. But the aged are not wise, nor do old men understand litigation. So I say, listen to me. I will speak my mind. Yes, I will. Behold, I waited on your words. I heard your insights as you probed arguments. To you, I paid close attention. But behold, there is no arbiter for Job. No one among you to answer his charges. How can you say we have found wisdom? Let El, not humans, refute him. He did not prepare his arguments against me, but I would not have refuted him with your speeches. They are shattered. They are no more. Arguments have forsaken them. I have waited till they finished speaking, stopped dead, and and answered no more. Oh, man, this is why he's so arrogant. This is why he's a blowhard. I will answer with my peace. Yes, I will. I will speak my mind. Yes, I will. For I am bloated with arguments and wind distends from my belly. That's a a joke towards farting. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins ready to explode. I will speak and be relieved. I will open my my lips and answer. I will be partial to no one and flatter no human. For if I knew how to flatter, my maker would soon dispatch me. He's talking like, without knowing it, what he's essentially saying is my words are as good as farts. And I have to get this internal windy pressure out of me. It's like, oh my gosh, this guy has no idea. So you can kind of see the original audience is laughing here a little bit at Elihu. Because he's really not going to say a whole lot new that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz have already said. But here we have four people surrounding Job. And their desire is to try to prove to Job that Job has actually got been evil. That he's deserved this. And so we have something really fascinating. Job here is resolute in saying, I didn't deserve anything any of this so this book um yes we did just read kind of two chapters and a third of an of another one but you can see that this book really is um it's like a roller coaster it really takes you through some highs and some lows and it brings people whoever reads it right to the center of the core issue of you don't always reap what you sow Or at least, what do we do with the fact that, excuse me, um, we have within the scriptures 
two statements that we've got to hold next to each other. One that says you reap what you sow, which means uh, you live a good life, you get good things. You live a bad life, you get bad things. We've got that statement, you reap what you sow. And then this other one that says you, you reap what you sow sometimes, not always. And so this book is obviously an ancient book written in a Semitic language on another continent I'm writing, I'm listening, or sorry, speaking this podcast from just outside of Philly in North America. Even though it it has been translated and passed down through thousands of years, it's still touching on something very, very central to the human experience. And it's something everyone needs to deal with because often when we're younger, our framework or our grammar for how we think life is supposed to be is that you reap what you sow, everything is just, everything has got a purpose, there's direct causality between the good that you do and the good that you get, the bad that you do and the bad that you get. And then you live enough of life to realize that's not always the case, it seems. That sometimes bad things happen because of things outside of your own control. And some of us would define that as suffering. When you are at the whim of circumstances outside of your control and it's inflicting pain upon you all of us would call that suffering see it's not suffering to go to the gym you're like you're imposing that upon yourself but when things are outside of your own control especially in job's case where he's lost his finances his business his family and his health and his reputation in the entire community so that now he's the basest of everyone He didn't deserve that. But again, and this is the problematic part, you and I both know that it's Job's having this happen because God and Satan made a wager up in heaven. So this book really changes some things around. We've got to ask the question of theodicy, which is how can a good God allow pain and suffering in the world? This book throws you right into the middle of that discussion. Now, here's what I think is interesting, is that so many people cast off the Bible and they think it's regressive or behind the times and that it should just be shucked off. However, it throws you when you actually read it for what it's saying. If you can can read through the thousands of years of cultural difference, it's still touching on timeless arguments or debates or themes that happen in every generation of human history. So you can't just throw off an ancient book that's been passed down because there's like a timeless wisdom to these books because it invites you into a conversation. It invites you into an argument, an ongoing dialogue that still hasn't stopped. Okay, so here we go. Let's wrap it up. So Job sat with his friends who do nothing more than try to reiterate the theology that they were taught. And then a new guy comes along, a young gun who also does the same thing, but he does it with an even more intense fervor. 
This book is about Job setting up his lawsuit against God. And we just read that in chapter 30 and 31. Mm, yeah. So let's, let's give a preview. In the next episode, it's going to be called... <laughs> that's going to be so funny. This next episode is going to be called... Uh, oh, man. Job Part 3. Uh, hippos, alligators, and loins. Because here's what's going to happen. And this is no shock, I guess. Although it, it is to the characters that we just read, the people. God shows up. After Elihu stops his intense fervor of defending God's innocence, God shows up and listens. Apparently, God's been paying attention to these friends, but also Job's complaint and lawsuit against him. And so when God shows up, something, it's like a bomb, it's a mic drop of a moment. And so, does it resolve? Does it not resolve? How does it resolve? You see, this book is fascinating because, yes, the first three chapters set the stage. The middle 40-ish chapters are all about the building of uh, an argument towards the climax that happens in the final, was that, four, three or four chapters? So, everything's going to come to a head when God finally shows up. So that'll be the next one. And uh, man, are you going to be able to wait a week until then? <laughs> Hopefully, this has been an interesting ride. So if you haven't, um, go back, maybe reread chapter 30 and 31 for yourself. It's Job's complaints. Maybe do it in a different translation than I did. But then maybe go back and also look at Job chapter 28, just because I think that's a brilliant chapter. Okay, And then next episode we're going to pick it up when god shows up to this courtroom scene in this crazy bewildering confusing epic story that we know as the book of job that's it you are all wonderful thank you for listening grace and peace to all of you